Welcome back to Season 3 of Return to Truth Podcast. Once again, I am your host, Clint Curry. Thank you so very much for joining me today. It is a pleasure. If this is your first time here with me, then please allow me to welcome you to the show. And if you've listened to us before, I appreciate your continued loyalty to the Bible Truth and this podcast. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast channel so you can stay up to date on each and every new episode that drops. We are dropping new episodes every Monday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Unless, of course, I take a break in between episodes, and if I do, you will be notified right here. And of course, if you haven't yet listened to our previous podcast episode, or season for that matter, we are actually on our third one now, then please, please make sure you take some time to go back and give them all a listen. Don't miss out. We have already covered so much at this point. In our last episode, we started out the new year right by discussing that in Christ Jesus, we can in fact have the ultimate resolution of restoration. We can't have a new birth at any time we ask Him. We aren't limited to just one do-over a year. And best of all, we don't have to wait until a new year begins. God's love for us is more than the drops in the ocean, and so is His forgiveness. That is an episode you don't want to miss out on. So with all that said, before we begin today's episode, we need to ask God to guide us into a better understanding of His Word. So let's start off with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we call out to you today and ask that you give us the gift of discernment. Guide our minds into a better understanding of who you really are. Allow us to see the truth through your word so that we can draw closer to you, so that we can listen to you and you alone, so we can make up our minds for ourselves not the world. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. The title of today's episode is Proving the Bible, Part 2. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to start off this episode with a question. And then I would like to challenge an idea. It's a question and an idea that we have all heard before. The question is, how do we know what was written is what is written. Let me rephrase that. How do we know what was once written back then, some thousands of years ago, is still what is written today in the very Bible that is within your own home? In this episode, we will answer this question and in the process, challenge this idea, this narrative that the Bible has changed, that the Bible has lost all meaning, and that we can't truly know what it says, that it somehow, after all these years, is not what it once was. We will see that the Bible is just as accurate today as it was thousands of years ago. Untouched and unchanged, and the core meaning and the focal piece of the entire Bible is still intact. John chapter 17, verse 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You know, it's said, if you find the oldest book, you find the oldest truth, the oldest revelation of truth. 
But how do you know if you have truth? What does truth look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What I would like to do today is talk to you about the remarkable preservation of the biblical text over thousands of years and how extensive manuscript evidence supports the belief that what we read in our Bibles today accurately reflects the original writings from back then. Let's see if we can do that. You see, scholars, theologians, and professors all agree. Despite the vast timescale and the complexity of its transmission, thousands of years later, thousands of manuscripts written, the Bible's textual integrity is no doubt remarkably and extremely strong. The Bible is an extremely connected and unified book. And by virtually any account, the Bible is the most influential book of all time. What I'd like to do now is lay down a simple foundation of Bible facts to get us started, to get us going in the right direction. Sometimes this is all it takes to realize that truth can't be changed. Number one, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Number two, the Bible sees up to 100 million copies sold or donated annually. Number three, ironically, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not steal. The Bible is the most stolen book in the world. Number four, the Bible is the most widely read book in all of history. Number five, the Bible is proven to be more historically and archaeologically accurate than any other ancient book. Number six, it is the most well-documented book in all of history. Number seven, 85% of U.S. households own a Bible. Number eight, the Bible has been translated to over 690 languages. Number nine, the Bible text is far more accurately preserved than any other ancient text of history. And number 10, the Bible consists of 66 books in just one. So these are some amazing statistics for just any random book. But this isn't just a random book. It's the actual spoken word of God himself. But does this answer the question that we are asking? Let's ask another and see where it takes us. So who wrote the Bible? I think this is a valid question to start with. Well, the Bible consists of 40 different authors written over a period of 1,500 years. Authors from over 19 different lifestyles, three different continents, three different original languages that includes Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written from prisoners to shepherds to farmers, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, kings, scholars, and scribes. All types of people, all types of walks of life. Understanding its complex authorship requires us to recognize the interplay between divine inspiration and human agency. The Bible is a product of the collective efforts of numerous individuals across different time periods, cultures, and backgrounds. From the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament disciples and apostles, each author contributed their unique perspectives, guided by their faith and experiences. Even more so after the fact, 
See how far the Bible has come and is still intact after all these years. You will not find any inconsistency in doctrinal unity. You see, the scribes, with their meticulous preservation and transcription efforts, safeguarded the sacred text for generations to come. The Bible stands as a testament to the multifaceted collaboration between humanity and the divine, serving as a timeless source of spiritual guidance and inspiration in the very words of God himself. Given such a great span of time, authorship, and variances of the author's lives, can one not be amazed by the consistency of these texts? It's all because God's words will never fade. The Bible, this book, it's not going anywhere. It says here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says that not one iota, not one jot or dot, not one tittle, will pass away from the law. This most likely refers to the smallest strokes of the Hebrew alphabet, indicating that the Old Testament, as well as the New, is completely trustworthy, even to the smallest detail. But does this answer the question? We need to continue to dig deeper. This is only the beginning of something much bigger. So let's go way back. Let's go back, I'd say about 2,000 years ago. Let's start off with the Dead Sea Scrolls. What I'd like to do is present to you one of the greatest biblical discoveries in modern times, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Discovered in the mid-20th century, revealed ancient biblical manuscripts dating back to the time of Jesus, providing valuable insights into the consistency of the biblical text. Let's go ahead and look at the story and discovery behind these legendary ancient manuscripts. It was in the spring of 1947. There was a man by the name of Muhammad who was climbing down the slopes of the west coast of the Dead Sea. It says he was looking for his lost goat. He began to throw stones into the nearby caves where he thought he might be. He heard something break. Making his way up the cave, what had he found? A hidden treasure, maybe. But to his sadness, only some old scrolls in clay jars. In one of the caves, he discovered 50 clay jars, which were carefully aligned along the side of the walls. One of the 24 high-inch jars was broken through because of the stone he had thrown. He had no idea that he held a treasure in his hands that was more valuable than any gold or silver ever imaginable. Months later, he was able to sell them to an archbishop by the name of Mar Samuel of the Syrian Orthodox Church. The price was just $92. Now imagine that. Only $92 for something greater than all of the earth itself. The Word of God. For months, the archbishop tried and tried to figure out what he had bought, and he could not decipher them at all. So in February... In 1948, he met up with a young American Bible teacher by the name of Dr. Trevor, who was able to see immediately that the scrolls were indeed a true biblical treasure. So what did the archbishop do? He tried to sell them. So a rare opportunity emerged for Israel in June of 1954 when a small 
ad appeared in the Wall Street Journal paper. It read this, Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 B.C. are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. Israeli authorities eager to purchase the advertised scrolls knew Mar Samuel, the Metropolitan of Jerusalem Syrian Monastery. And they knew that he had placed the four manuscripts in a New Jersey bank vaults. But were those scrolls authentic? They needed to find out more information. That problem was solved on July 1, 1954, when Professor Harry M. Orlinsky of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, using the alias of Mr. Gree, met Samuel's representatives at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. Mr. Green carefully studied the fragments and became convinced they were genuine. Following the meeting, Orlinsky called a special telephone number and spoke a single code word, l'chaim. That's the Hebrew word, to light, the term used in toast. He confirmed the scroll's authenticity using this term. A few years later, the Israeli government was able to purchase the four scrolls for $250,000, the equivalent of about $2.2 million today. That sounds like something straight out of a movie. Since then, the scrolls have been examined by thousands and thousands who agree that these are more than genuine. They are indeed authentic, the real deal. But we need to ask a question. Who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls? That should be the next question we ask ourselves. And why does this matter? You see, it's a pivotal point to understand exactly who wrote them and why, as this will open up our next path as we continue to answer the main question at hand that we asked at the beginning of this episode. You see, they were written by a community of Jewish aesthetics called the Essenes, who devoted their lives to writing and preserving sacred text. The Essenes were a Jewish sect that existed from the 2nd century B.C., to the first century AD during the Second Temple period. They lived in various cities, but most notably near the Dead Sea, hence the connection to the Dead Sea Scrolls which were discovered in the vicinity. These documents are significant as they contain the earliest known copies of the Hebrew Bible, among other Jewish texts and documents detailing the life and beliefs of the community believed to be the Essenes. The Essenes are considered by many scholars and the scribes of the Dead Sea Scrolls due to the close proximity of their community to the location of the caves where the scrolls were found. With that said, more than likely, they were already writing by the time Jesus began preaching. Ultimately, they stored the scrolls in 11 caves before Romans destroyed their settlement in AD 68, and historians believe the scrolls were hidden in the caves to protect them from being destroyed. But does any of this answer the question? Does this prove anything? Well, what I'd like to do is call out a few words here as takeaways. You know, it says here that they devoted their lives to writing and preserving sacred text. Keep that with you as we move along into the rest of this episode, because this will tie into the answer. You know, but to really understand this in greater detail, we really need to take a look at the Dead Sea Scrolls for ourselves and see what they tell us. Yes, 
you can, in fact, view these on your own. You can clearly see what they look like and read them for yourselves. So let's do something different in this podcast episode. Take a moment to do a quick internet search for me and look for Dead Sea Scroll Fragment 4Q7. That's 4Q7. So you can follow along with me. This was found in Cave 4 at Qumran, and here you can see the fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls with a portion of the writings of the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Take a look at the right side. Look at the text. It looks very familiar, doesn't it? Let me read it for you straight from the scroll itself. This is Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So evening and morning were the second day. So let's stop here. Reads the same as the Bible you have today, doesn't it? Now that's pretty remarkable for a 2,000-year-old document. We can see, even after all this time, the true Word of God continues to be the same as it was back then. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24-25 through 25 reads this, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flowers fall away. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So now I believe we are getting somewhere with this. Now I think, I think just maybe we're going to be able to answer this question, but we need to move on. We need to move on to the next part, the Hebrew manuscripts. Let's see how these are involved in all of this. From the book of the general introduction to the Bible, it says this, most of the available Hebrew manuscripts prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls did not go back beyond the 9th or 10th century AD. However, the most comprehensive collection of the Hebrew manuscripts is in the Russian Public Library. It will suffice to mention only several of the important manuscripts on which our printed Hebrew Bibles were based in the past. These include about six different codecs, some of these include the Leningrad Codex from A.D. 1008, the British Museum Codex of the Pentateuch dated about A.D. 950, the Leningrad Codex of the Prophets dated A.D. 916. But I don't want to get hung up too much on Codex because there are many other manuscripts, some of them quite fragmentary. But these are the most important of the Old Testament in the Masoretic tradition. But here's the point. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Judean Desert in 1947 and following, 
We can now look at manuscripts a thousand years older than what we had before. We already had many upon many manuscripts before the Dead Sea Scrolls, but when we found them, we could see that there was no change even a thousand years earlier. What is assuring is when one considers all the possibilities of transcriptional errors slipping in, it is the fact that the Masoretic text, what we had before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, is substantially the same as that of the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. Okay, let's do some more internet research. This time, go ahead and search for the Nash Papyrus. The Nash Papyrus, dated 100 to 150 BC, a 2,000-year-old document, was the oldest biblical text known before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This single sheet, not from a scroll, was purchased from an Egyptian dealer by the name of W.L. Nash. It's 24 lines long, with a few letters missing at each edge. This papyrus contains the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. Noted on one of them is the Fourth Commandment listed, and that is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 2.8. You can read it right here for yourself. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to Constantine von Tichendorf and his story. Tichendorf was a world-leading biblical scholar who was noteworthy in his success in defending the authenticity of the Bible text. Tichendorf was educated in Greece, and during his university studies, he was troubled by higher criticism of the Bible, as taught by famous German theologians who sought to prove that the Greek New Testament was not authentic. Tichendorf became convinced, however, that through research of the early manuscripts, they would prove the trustworthiness of the Bible text. And now we enter the Codex Sinaiticus. The Sinaiticus was discovered by Constantine von Tichendorf in the middle of the 19th century. It is called Sinaiticus because he found it in the monastery of the St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. The monks had been using similar material to make fires. He warned them not to use such precious materials. Tichendorf was allowed to take it to his room for the night, and he stayed up all night examining the codex. How great was his excitement, because here was a manuscript of most of the Bible from the 4th century, in excellent condition. The codex contains most of the Old Testament in Greek and all of the New Testament. Let's look back at A General Introduction to the Bible by David Ewart. It says here, Codex Sinaiticus is one of the most important books in the world. Handwritten well over 1,600 years ago, the manuscript contains the Christian Bible in Greek, including the oldest complete copy of the New Testament. Its heavily corrected text is out of outstanding importance for the history of the Bible and the manuscript. The oldest substantial book to survive antiquity is of supreme importance for the history of the book. It was Tichendorf that brought us the Sinaiticus Codex. My point to this is this. It is because of people like him and many other scholars and theologians, scribes, that allow us to have what we are reading today. These are the people that made sure to bring us an unchanged Bible into the lives that we are living right now. So that is a very interesting point. 
This adds even more insight and depth into many more manuscripts that continue to give us evidence of an unchanging Bible. Okay, so we talked about the Essenes and theologians and scribes, but just how reliable are these people? Scribes and copyists played a crucial role in preserving and transmitting the biblical text. They meticulously copied manuscripts by hand, employing strict techniques and practices to ensure accuracy and consistency. This process involved counting letters, words, and lines to minimize errors and employing specific rules to maintain the sanctity of the text. Scribes were part of a scribble tradition that emphasized the utmost reverence for the text that they were copying. They viewed their work as a sacred duty and took great care to faithfully reproduce the words of the original manuscripts. This dedication to accuracy ensured the transmission of the biblical text across all generations. Who, in great detail, preserved and transmitted the Hebrew Bible from the 6th to the 10th century A.D.? They developed a system of vowel pointing, accentuation, and marginal notes known as the Mazorah. So we see that the Masoretic text, based on their work, became the authoritative Hebrew text of the Old Testament, and their methods ensured the consistency and accuracy of the Masoretic text. Through their diligent efforts, the Masoretic text became a reliable witness to the original Hebrew Bible. But does any of that answer the question? Can we finally say that we know what was written is what is written? Well, you're going to need to stay tuned for part three of Proving the Bible. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We have so much more coming your way. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Just search the name Return to Truth and look for the logo. So feel free to drop us a Bible question and we will answer it here on the show. You can also leave a comment or even request a shout out. You can find Return to Truth on many different podcast apps. Just search Return to Truth and look for the logo. Make sure to follow this podcast channel on any of those apps or websites to stay up to date. Don't forget to then rate, comment, and subscribe because I want to hear from you. And please share this podcast as much as you can. Remember to stay tuned for our next episode, Proving the Bible, Part 3, as we return to truth.